Hi, I'm Mark Kernian and I teach chemistry. Hi, I'm Jack Kernian and I teach physics. And welcome to the My Science Podcast, where learning about chemistry and physics becomes what it always should have been, fun and interesting, yet serious and valuable. Mark and I are identical twin brothers who started our careers as engineers and switched to science education more than three decades ago. That's over 60 years of combined experience teaching high school students about the amazing insights of the physical sciences. And we want to share that experience with you. So if you have any comments or questions about today's podcast, send them to kernian at myscience-prep.com. That's K-E-R-N-I-O-N at myscience-prep.com. We'd love to hear from you. Hey, Mark, today we're going to talk about a physical phenomenon that has caused awe in humans since the dawn of civilization. But it's only relatively recently that it's been understood in a clear way. Kind of like the uh, concept of energy we talked about in a previous podcast. Sounds exciting. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I want to make sure everybody understands by the word recently there, I'm talking uh, 300 years ago. And the reason why that's relatively recent is because it's only a blip in the overall time that humans have inhabited the Earth, and even less of a blip in cosmic history. Yeah, so much has been found out in the last 300 years relative to how long we've been around. And we call that the era of modern science, right? Mm -hmm. So it goes back around 300 years or so. Okay. To get a sense of the time scale that I'm talking about here, let me ask you if you know how old is the universe? Well, I sort of have a sense for this because I do talk about this in my classes. Mm -hmm. Uh, What I've said recently... uh, is it's around 13.2 billion years old is what I tell my students. Yeah, and that's actually a number that was bandied around for a while. The most recent um, measurements and calculations have put it at about 13.7 billion years, so it's oh, okay. pretty close. Yeah, when I first started teaching, and it was uh, over 30 years ago, I remember reading uh, in many sources that they considered it to be about 15 to 20 billion years old. So we've gotten better at making our measurements. Here. Absolutely, that's right. And we might change a little bit in the future. You never sure. know. But yeah. right now, the best measurement is about 13.7 billion years old. So it's really, really old. A long, long time, but a finite time. But a finite <laughs> yeah. time, yes. Yeah. How old do you think the Earth is, which is just a part of the universe? Did it form right after the beginning of the universe? Or how long do you think well, it was it, it took a little bit of time. So I, I, this is one of those things, too, that I have taught. I, I, my recollection is somewhere around 4 billion years. That's really close. Yeah, it's 14, I'm sorry, it's 4.5 billion years old. Only, okay. All which right. is really old, but it's not as old as the universe itself. Now let's focus a little bit more on humans and human ancestors. I would say the first uh, upright walking primate with the freedom to use hands it made a big difference in how primates were able to evolve. How long ago do you think that occurred? When was the first upright walking primate, which was our human ancestor? Yeah, this is like uh, a little bit harder for me for whatever reason to remember these kinds of things. It gets a little bit more, you're getting more and more specific. Yes. So I, I, my feeling is somewhere around 250,000 years ago. It's I, actually a lot further than that. It's like 6 million years ago that our ancestors actually came into being. So it's it's been a long time. Yeah. Um, now, I think what we're think, you're thinking about, perhaps, and maybe what other people who are listening were thinking about, is the first appearance of our specific species of primate called Homo sapiens. Oh, okay. How long ago do you think that was? That, that seems to me it should be around 250,000 years. Close. Right? Yeah, it's yeah. about 200,000 years ago. Okay. Right. And when you think about it, if you divide by about 25 years per, or 20 years per generation, mm-hmm. we're talking about approximately 10,000 generations, maybe a little bit more, okay. which is not really all that much. 10,000 generations of humans 
in human history, right? Again, it's a, a very a finite number. It's, a finite it's, a, it's number, not like this right. unbelievably, you know, an infinite number. That's right. Now, recorded history is different because there were uh, humans around, but they didn't record anything, so we don't know what their lives were like. But when do you think recorded human history happened? And I will tell I'll give you a clue that it was the Sumerians that created this thing called cuneiform, which was allowed them to record their experiences. How long ago do you think that happened? Yeah, like in, in my thinking, I uh, you know I think well it's two thousand years since Christ, mm-hmm. and it was happening before then, and so mm-hmm. I would say five thousand years. Yeah, that's exact. Finally, you got the right answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> five thousand years ago, or again by the kind of similar calculation, two hundred generations ago, that's there was cuneiform. Many. That's not a lot at all. Two hundred. Yeah, and that was in Mesopotamia, like in around area around Syria, Lebanon, and Kuwait. There was also ancient Egyptian hieroglyphs from about the same time. So we've been able to kind of know what the experience of humans have been like for about 5,000 years or so. Okay. And these observant, the observances I want to talk about today of this particular phenomenon have been recorded through starting about 5,000 years ago in almost every area of the world. You can look at Judeo-Christian, Scandinavian, Greek, let's say Roman, Muslim, Hindu, Native American mythology, all of these cultures have discussed the particular phenomenon that I'm going to talk about today. So it's a ubiquitous sort of a thing. Do you have a okay. guess as to what it is? Well, when you raise a question like that, um, something that everyone would experience uh, and sort of that has been explained from a scientific perspective of late, I would say like, you know, the sun rising, the fact that there's a sun mm-hmm. keeps us warm. And that, that, that does cause awe in people. Yeah. But I'm talking about something that's not quite so every day. This, hap- this thing I'm t- talking about does happen a lot, but not every day. And because of that, I think it becomes even more awesome. Oh, yeah. Did anything yeah. else come to mind? Um, I mean, one of the things that I think about might be like a, like a natural phenomenon, like an earthquake. <laughs> that's more <laughs> close like to what that. I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. What I want to describe today is lightning. Oh, sure. Yeah, lightning okay. is something that we've all experienced, and it turns out that human beings throughout history have experienced and you know, written those experiences down, and we know what it's like um, back in the old days because people have said, you know, lightning or this thing in the sky occurred, right. and they wondered about it and wanted to find out what it was like. Yeah, so, and almost scared by it. It is maybe, scary. That's why, and that's why I'm talking about awe, yeah. but you might, you might even call it shock and awe, yeah. right, because of the, <laughs> the, the, the what we're going to talk about charges in just a second. Sure. So let me start uh, with the basics of lightning by talking about it as, a, as an electrical phenomenon, okay. and specifically I want to discuss the contributions to our understanding of it that was made by one of the most important historical figures of the early U.S. And I'm sure you know who I'm talking about here. Well, I think most people would put together things like uh, a historical figure in the early United States and electricity and uh, think about Benjamin Franklin. That's exactly right. Ben Franklin. Good. And it seems like every scientist we've discussed in all these podcasts have interesting facets of life that go beyond science. This is not going to be true anymore of any of them. Uh, beyond Ben Franklin. I mean, this Mm. guy led an amazingly interesting life. And I'll talk about some of the details as we move through some of the science here, too. That sounds good. So let's start off just with electricity itself. Electricity comes in two forms. One's called static electricity, and the other one's called current electricity. Okay. Static electricity refers to charges that are at rest. Current electricity is about charges that are moving in a particular direction. And it turns out that lightning is an example of a discharge of static electricity. So the charges were at rest, 
and then they're going to move, and that discharge is what we call lightning. When it when goes, you look at it like that. It's, it sounds fairly simple. It <laughs> is, yeah. And it turns out that each one of these two phenomenon of electricity, and we're not going to talk about current electricity today, but each one of them relies on a notion that some particles possess some measurable quantity, and we call that quantity charge, okay. which I'm sure you're familiar with as a chemist. Yeah, we talk about uh, charges uh, like a property of matter. Yes, exactly. There are many, many properties of matter, and that happens to be one of them. Yeah, and, and you know the property I like to talk about first whenever I talk about charge is the property called mass. Because hmm. I think everybody kind of understands what mass is because we deal with it in a practical way every day. Yeah, I, I always talk about it as an amount of matter. Mm-hmm. And when we try and lift a greater amount of matter, it becomes harder, right? So sure. the idea of lifting something is... is uh, really connected to how much mass it has and how difficult it is. So I think all of our listeners probably understand that a property that can be measured and understood easily is called mass. So what I want to say today before we get into any more detail is that if you understand that mass is a property that's measurable, charge is very much like it. And it's related to forces in the same way that mass is. Because the more mass in an interaction, the greater the force of gravitational attraction. And it turns out that the more charge there is in an interaction, the greater the electrical force associated with it. And also the fact that these things have units associated with them that we can quantify. Yeah, I want to tell everybody what the units of mass are. The unit of mass uh, uh, and amount of matter was um, uh, defined several years ago by this prototype kilogram that was housed in a museum in France. And uh, whatever amount of matter matching that amount of matter, we referred to as a kilogram. Nowadays, they have an atomic definition of it, which I don't have off the top of my head. But um, that's it's just an amount of matter, a specific amount of matter, and, and, and that uh, could be compared to. And what's the unit for charge? Yeah, the unit for charge is called the Coulomb. And right. um, we talk about things like protons and electrons, which you might be talking about as having a certain amount of charge. Uh, the value was determined by Robert Millikan, in his famous oil drop experiment, turns out to be 1.6 times 10 to the minus 19 coulombs per either one of those uh, fundamental particles. That's exactly right. And it turns out that the concept of charge being a uh, property of matter is is super important for understanding of both static electricity and current electricity. Now, prior to Franklin's day, however, there wasn't a sense of charge. It turns out he came up with that idea of charge, and he said that there were two types positive and negative, which I think most people kind of hear about even when they're in middle school, right? So Franklin was responsible for the idea of this two-charge model, the positive and negative nature of charges. And so um, before I go into the details of of that charge idea, let me just say that Ben Franklin did a lot, right? One of the things is come up with the concept of charge. I mean, just that by itself. That's that's (laughs) big, yeah. uh, Because people all know about Positive and yeah. negativeness. No, I mean, sure. and, and yeah. so to be a, the person who uh, yeah. it's just uh, introduces that uh, term, even yeah. just terminology, yeah, it no, would be an amazing, it's just amazing thing. To yeah. Do. yeah, and he was more than just a scientist. So he was a famous writer, obviously a famous statesman, an amazing inventor, and I'll talk about some of his inventions later. Mm-hmm. But he was born in Boston in 1706. He was the eighth child of immigrant Josiah Franklin's 10 children to his second wife. He had a first wife who had seven children. So young Ben had like tons of siblings and half siblings around. The one thing he didn't have, however, was extensive schooling. Did you know he only went to school for two years? Wow. But he was a voracious reader and he learned as much as he could about anything and everything. So by the time the 1740s hit... He had established himself as a renowned writer and an amazing publisher in Philadelphia. 
And it turns out he was visiting Boston one day, and there was an electrical demonstration given by a person from Britain who came over to share some of these kind of like almost entertaining uh, pers- uh, perspectives on electricity. Oh, like we yeah. do these, these big shows with static electricity. Yeah, I always and, talk about um, Michael Faraday, um, an English scientist, one of the greatest experimentalists of all time, mm-hmm. putting on shows for society and for children. Yeah. And much like we would go to the movies these days, they had these science shows. Yeah, because... And Faraday was an, uh, a largely self-educated person oh, as really? well. Oh, really? Okay, yeah. interesting. Mm-hmm. And the, when people went to these shows, um, it wasn't that the people were explaining what the phenomenon were like. It was just kind of like real glitzy, almost like a Cirque du Soleil mm-hmm. of its time, where the phenomenon was shown and people went ooh and ah, but they really weren't explained what it was. Because to be honest with you, the people who were doing the demonstration often didn't know it themselves. Yeah. And so um, when humans experience this, this idea of electrical phenomenon in some way, shape or form before Ben Franklin's day, it was normally in nature by like electric eels or electric rays. Uh. But they didn't realize that uh, even even up until Franklin's day, that lightning was another form of electrical phenomenon that was not known prior to, to Franklin. So it seems so easy to make that connection these days. For well, you us. had to prove it, though. But you know? but uh, you know, back then, I think you know we take so much for granted how much we've been educated. But I know. Uh, when we come back from the break, we're going to talk about a little bit more of the history pre-Ben Franklin, and then we'll move on to learn more about his life and the ideas associated with static electricity. That sounds great. Hi, I'm Ben from the band Sonic Acrylic, who provided the music for this podcast. We just put out our new album, Alternates. Here's a clip from track four, Disasteroid. That was Disasteroid off of our new album, Alternates. To hear more, go to Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon Music, or anywhere else you like to listen. Or head on over to our website, sonicacrylic.com. Okay, Mark, so uh, prior to the break, we were talking about electrical phenomenon and Ben Franklin's contributions. But even before him, there was an English physician and scientist named William Gilbert, who was alive and, and did his work around 1600. Wow. It's like 150 years before Franklin's hmm. uh, famous experiments. And he was able to talk about electrical and magnetic attractions with some theoretical basis. And um, he used this really interesting way of talking about these two phenomena. He talked about something around the materials that cause these properties, and he called it effluvium. Have you ever heard the word <laughs> effluvium before? <laughs> no, it's a funny word. It, it is like funny, it. yeah. So he said around things that were electrical, there was this electric effluvium. Okay. Around things that were magnetic, there was this magnetic effluvium. Okay. And we can think about it as an atmosphere kind of around something. Okay. In the same way that there's an atmosphere around the Earth, and he, he proposed that maybe the atmosphere had different amounts of atmosphere in it in different places, which caused attraction for objects up in, up in the atmosphere to come back down to the Earth. So oh. in a way, he was using the effluvium around the Earth, the atmosphere, to describe how gravitational force worked. Sure. So he extended that and says, well, there's also something called electrical effluvium around electrical uh, objects and magnetic effluvium around magnetic objects and so on. 
And so this concept of effluvium became pretty popular. Well, I think most of the time when people come up with ideas, uh, they sort of like the idea that there's a symmetry to understanding. Yeah, so something right, that right. explains one right, thing, right. also being able to explain the other mm-hmm. gives us like some confidence in right. it. Because if it works in this situation, why not in another? Why not? Yeah. yeah. And you also think about it, at the time... Uh, there was this sense uh, among the scientific community that in order for something to attract or repel or push on something, there had to be some intervening medium between them. Mm-hmm. And so the effluvium served as that connection between two objects that seemed to be separated. Sure. And and that's well and good, but it turns out that you know it wasn't correct. Mm-hmm. And Franklin is going to come up with a different way of thinking about it. But so in other words, how how could one thing make another thing move when it wasn't touching it? Exactly. So you yeah, need something to something cause something in between. Yeah. yeah. And now, um, one of the things that Gilbert did in addition to that idea of effluvium was he separated the phenomenon of electrical things and magnetic things. He knew there were objects that you can dig out of the ground, uh, like petrified tree resin. Like if a tree had resin in it, it fell over, it was covered with dirt for a long time. Eventually, the amber, which is what petrified tree resin in, would be able to be reclaimed from that tree. Mm -hmm. And so think about like this resin just kind of solidifying over the years. You pull it out of the tree later, you rub it with something like your clothing, and all of a sudden it begins to be able to attract small feathers. Okay. Now, amber in Greek is called electron. That's the word, oh. like the, the definition of it in Greek is That's electron. That's nice to know. <laughs> yeah, so, so anytime you would, say, for example, rub something and then have it have an electrical phenomenon like attracting small objects like feathers and so on, he would call that phenomenon electricus. Okay. It dealt with rubbing certain types of materials and having this crazy kind of almost like action at a distance occur right right? that's different from the other stuff that he dug out of the ground called magnetite or what's known as a lodestone where no rubbing was necessary but you can attract small pieces of iron with it so you could still have the same in a sense phenomenon of pushing things around or pulling things that's right but not have to do the rubbing that's right so the one without the rubbing was called magnetic phenomenon the one with it was called the electrical phenomenon okay so the idea of effluvium that, that caused these po- these possibilities for both magnetism and electricity remained in the public discourse for like 150 years, right up to when Franklin was doing his work. He and other people in his day wanted to come up with a different way of thinking about things, though. And he suggested then that there was this stuff called an electric fluid that could explain various electrical phenomenon, like both static electricity and current electricity. Okay, And so... His ideas replaced the effluvium hypothesis. And it wasn't like he won over everybody immediately, but it turns out after time, people began thinking about the way he described electrical phenomenon and found it to be better than the effluvium hypothesis. Okay. So what is this idea of electrical fluid? He said that there are, in every area of the world, say, for example, um, if you take a look at a piece of metal that's up in the air or a rock that's down in the ground, the ability for it to have charge. And it's going to be positively charged if there was more electric fluid in that object than there was in the ground. And if there was less electrical fluid in an object compared to the ground, then we say it's negatively charged. So it's kind of like the relative amounts of this electrical fluid Mm -hmm. that cause something to be either positive or negative. And as we know, when it comes to forces, positives are going to repel each other, negatives are going to be attracted to positives and so on. So the forces involved with this was associated with how much electrical fluid there was. I always uh, uh, taught 
kids like uh, the, the idea of positive or negative was sort of arbitrarily assigned but I, it's well, not well, i mean it, in a sense because it has this i mean it was just it has made this up background i know but mm-hmm. but in terms of positive of having more of something and and negative of having less of something yeah, yeah. that's a good way of thinking mm-hmm. about it um now we don't think about electrical phenomenon in the same way as this electrical fluid mm-hmm. but it still was it was a improvement upon the idea of a fluvium that didn't have any charge associated with it okay so what happened was after franklin did all of his experimentation he published uh, these ideas in a pamphlet that he called Experiments and Observations on Electricity. And with the help of his friends in Europe, he became hugely popular, especially in France and England. Hmm. And in this uh, this pamphlet, he described what could be an experiment that he kind of invited people to participate in, in which he can claim that with his theory, he can show that lightning and static electricity were exactly the same thing. Oh, okay. okay so okay. this is one of the important parts of the history that we don't often hear. We often see maybe pictures of Franklin in the famous kite experiment. But why was he doing that? Mm -hmm. He was trying to show everybody that lightning and the static electrical discharges he saw in these shows were exactly the same thing. And some people doubted that. So... Uh, Even though it sort of looked the same on a mini level. (laughs) Right, but I guess it wasn't proven to be the same exact thing. And who knows what the ideas were in most people's minds. Yes. I can tell you this, though, that if you look back in the history of science, those two things were thought of as two different phenomena until Franklin showed that they were the same thing. So in 1752, there was this famous French scientist named Dalibard who used Franklin's ideas to bring what Franklin called the electric fire down from the clouds Mm -hmm. and prove that it was static electricity by storing that electrical charge in a device known as a Leiden jar and then using it in the same way that you would use the Leiden jar's charges that you get the charge from other aspects of of nature. So you might be able to, for example, rub a glass rod with some silk, touch it to the pole of a a Leiden jar, and the Leiden jar gets charged up. Mm -hmm. A Leiden jar is nothing more than a capacitor, we call it that nowadays. Contain electrical energy? It's a way of storing electrical charge separated, positive and negative, uh, so you can use it later at later times. So when they charged Leiden jars in the olden days, they would use like you know rubbing a glass rod, touching it on the Leiden jar, and then storing that charge. But what Dalibar did with Franklin's prompting is to take lightning, basically pull it from the clouds, take that charge that was in the lightning and store it in a Leiden jar too. So it becomes exactly the same thing. Both okay. phenomena are the same. Does that make sense? Yes. Yep. And it did turn out that Franklin performed the experiment as well. But a little bit later than when Dalibard did, he did this famous kite and key experiment called the Philadelphia Experiment. Oh, that's uh, nice. and, has and, a name, huh? And you can read all about it in his autobiography, which is a fascinating piece of work. I mean, it's really well well written. I did remember. I remember reading that like uh, many years ago. And I'm disappointed that I don't remember as much as I should. <laughs> yeah, it's really it's really cool. It's actually written as a uh, as a letter in a sense to his son, and we'll maybe talk a little bit about his relationship with his son later on, but. Mm-hmm. He starts off saying, you know, dear son, uh-huh. and it's the beginning of it. Here's what I know. Here's I, what I like having that kind of context. To yeah, things. it's very personal yeah. as a result. Mm-hmm. I'd like to read just a few lines from that pamphlet, though, uh, that kind of give us an idea about what it is that Franklin told people to do and his description of the experiment that he actually conducted as well. Okay. He said, as soon as any of the thunderclouds came over the kite, the pointed wire will draw the electric fire from them and the kite, and all the twine will be electrified. And the loose filaments of the twine will stand out in every way and be attracted to an approaching finger. Hmm. But it's like when the hair gets standing up on sure. it when you touch a Van de Graaff Yeah, generator. we could all imagine that. Yeah, yeah. Now, he also went on to say that when the rain has wet the kite and the twine so that it can conduct the electric fire freely, 
you'll find it stream out plentifully from the key to the approach of your knuckle. At this key, the file, which is the Leiden jar, may be charged and the electric fire thus obtained. Spirits may become kindled, which means you can use that Leiden jar's energy to do things, and all the electrical experiments performed, which are usually done by the help of a rubbed glass globe or tube, and thereby the sameness of electrical matter with that of lightning can be completely demonstrated. Okay. So I just cool. wanted to be really clear about what he was trying to do there yes. and his emphasis on uniting these two, what were seem to be disparate phenomena. Unification of ideas is a big deal. It absolutely is. It, it helps us know that things. we understand things in a more simple way. That's right. To a degree. Like, it yeah. doesn't have to be complicated. That's Although, right. I mean, I'm not saying that certain things aren't, but mm-hmm. it does simplify things. Yeah, yeah. Now, I'm going to come back and talk about Franklin and his life a little bit more in a few minutes. But let's take this historical information and talk now about our current view of static electricity. How it's different and how it's the same. Okay. Now, it's obviously different from Franklin's notion of electrical fluid. Because even though he did talk about two types of charge... He didn't think about it in terms of subatomic particles, which he had no idea even existed. Okay. Yeah. So, so we have, what, when are we locking? What are we looking at? What time wise? We're talking yeah. about 1750. Yeah. And yeah. so, like, even just things like atoms weren't really postulated until the beginning of the 1800s. Exactly. Yeah. And inside the atoms, we now know that there are things called protons, electrons, and neutrons. Right. Yes. Protons and uh, electrons are charged. Protons positively, electrons negatively, to the same extent. But mm-hmm. neutrons are not charged. Yeah, I'd mentioned before that the number of coulombs that a proton has associated with it and an electron is exactly the same. That's right, yeah. And it turns out that there's this balance of charge then when you have like one proton and one electron in an atom, something like hydrogen, uh, even with there's, where there's a neutron in the nucleus. Well, not this, all hydrogen. Most hydrogen right. doesn't Most have doesn't, a neutron. Right, yeah. yeah. So you can have isotopes of hydrogen that yes. don't have a neutron. But That's right. if you have one proton and one electron, those charges are going to balance out. And they're going to attract each other, it turns out. But overall, there's electrical neutrality in an atom like that. Yes. Um, it turns out that when some materials are rubbed together, electrons from one material can be transferred to the other material so that it has an excess of negative charge. Right? The material that lost the electrons becomes positive due to a deficit. That's right. It but loses the other, negativeness. Exactly. But the one that gets the electrons becomes negatively charged. Yes. And that process, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this uh, term, but it's called triboelectric charging. And interestingly, these two materials will attract each other. Um, Scientists have developed a list of these materials called the triboelectric series that'll tell you what occurs when different materials are rubbed together. Have you never heard of that either? I have not. I've heard of the the Mohs hardness scale. That sort of like tells you the differences between the hardness of materials, which one's harder than or which one will scratch the other. Think think about about extending electrons. Right. Think of a series now that has both two ends to it rather than just soft to hard it goes okay. zero to something and then zero to something else so like the positive side is one list ah, negative side is another list and okay. so if a material is high on the positive side of the list and you rub that material with something that's high on the negative side of the list then charging will easily occur you okay. know let me give you a little test here mark okay what if i rub the plastic rod on some fur which one of those two things do you think will become positive and which will become negative well, just from my experiences in, in my in classrooms of trying to do some experiments with uh, with electricity and water, mm-hmm. <laughs> causing uh, streams of water to bend, I think that the rod will become negatively charged as it sort of takes that's, electrons away from the fur. That's right. That's right. Plastic becomes negative. Fur becomes positive because of their different places in the triboelectric series. What about silk and glass? Which one of those do you think is higher on the positive side and which one's lower, uh, higher on the negative side, oppositely? 
Yeah, again, I, I don't know if I never thought about it like this before, but I thought the glass rod would be negatively charged, but now I'm thinking about it, it's probably the other way around. <laughs> yeah, glass actually becomes positively charged, you know? So electrons are taken from the, the Electrons are taken from it and deposited onto the silk. And you could take any combination of materials you want, check it out on the Triboelectric series, see what would happen. Mm -hmm. um, but it turns out that this idea of charges is really only one part of the story when it comes to static electricity. Another part is something that I can't go into a tremendous amount today, but I think should be mentioned. It's the idea of what's known as an electric field. Yes. Have you heard of an electric field? I know you Yeah, I mean, I, I, I always talk about fields attributed to, uh, the, uh, the idea of them attributed to Michael Faraday. Yes. Yeah. I talk about like an aura that surrounds uh, charged it's particles. It's easily, like easily that. to visualize that way, but they're basically... Uh, fields are around things, as you mentioned. For example, electrical fields are around charges. Gravitational fields are around masses and so on. Mm -hmm. They're responsible for the forces that are exerted on other things. So if there is a, uh, a positive charge found in a field that was caused by another positive charge, mm -hmm. those two charges will repel each other. Yes. So it's the field that's, in a sense, doing the work. Like the interaction is between the fields and the charged particle that's it's in the field. It's not like the effluvium, or no, it's not no. like the fluid. It's no, it's a different no. kind of thing. It's a it's a, a field. It's called a vector field that, in every location, has a direction and a magnitude. Mm -hmm. And you can use the magnitude and direction of that field to determine what force is going to be uh, applied to the charge that's inside of that field. Okay. Okay. So it's not a material thing. It's just a way of, in a sense, mathematically model modeling the forces that are on the charges that are found in the field. Oh, okay. Right? That, that makes sense. Yeah. So what we want to think about is, you know, around these these charges are these fields, and it's the pushes that really matter, the pushes and pulls. Mm -hmm. e each charged particle has its own field. And then they do what's called yeah, superposition they together. They merge together to create and you get a, one big electromagnetic one, field. That we well, electric all field is different. Okay. You can have, the, for magnetics, yeah. there's a magnetic field as okay. well when the charges are moving. moving yeah. And we'll, again, probably another podcast in the future, we'll talk about that. Mm -hmm. And I want to go in more into the idea of fields because I think it is a very kind of mysterious notion for most people. Yes. But the important thing is when charges begin to move, let's say they're separated and then they move towards each other, it's because of the fields that are around the charges that interact with the other charges and mm -hmm. so on. Does that make sense? So you could have action at a distance? Is In that, a sense, yeah. yes, exactly right. Um, now, it turns out that when you rub something like your shoes onto a carpet and your shoes become negative, that negative charge then goes all around your body because the negative charges don't like each other. Right. They push each other apart. Separate. And so they separate all around your body. And it's not until you get close enough and have enough buildup on your body and then get close enough to something called a conductor that those charges can jump off of your body and onto that conductor. And then we get then see that little spark, okay. that static electric uh, spark that was so fascinating to Franklin and really to all of us, right? Sure. So um, what I want to talk about is the, first of all, just really quickly, is the force that causes the charges to jump from the place where they're built up, maybe on your finger, to the metal that's in a doorknob. The reason they do that is because of the fields that are around the particles and the forces that those things cause. Okay. But the idea of static electricity in and of itself is simply the, uh, the separation of charges at rest in different locations. Okay. And that same sort of thing happens on a really large scale in nature when we talk about lightning. Okay. And when we come back from the break, I'm going to describe that process uh, on a, in a, in a, at a really large scale. Great. This is Ben again from Sonic Acrylic. Really hope you enjoyed the clip we played at the last break. Going to play another one here for you off of track six on the album. This is called Forever. 
that. That was a clip off of track six, Forever. You can find more at Spotify, Amazon Music, Apple Music, and wherever else you listen. Thanks. So uh, before the break, we were talking about how static electricity and lightning have been proven by Ben Franklin to be the same thing. Let's check and see how, uh, at least our latest theories now, about how storm clouds cause the separation of charges and build up just like you do when you walk across a carpet, but on a much larger scale. Okay. So here's the way we think about it nowadays. And it's not 100% for sure, but this is what we think. There are lots of different sized particles of ice within a cloud. And they're constantly moving and colliding due to the conduction inside the cloud of, of the atmosphere, the movement around of the atmosphere due to different temperatures. Okay. And they keep on colliding with each other. In the same way your shoes collide with the carpet, these little particles of ice collide with each other. And depending upon their size, the collisions will cause some of them to become positive and some of them to become negative. Okay. And they kind of move around in that cloud and accumulate in various areas. Even though they're not different substances like we saw right. when you were talking about those. That's um, different. The, the scale yeah. before. The, 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 the it's same just the action of rubbing yeah. the particles yeah. together that allows them to become positively and negatively charged. Now, it might have to do with surface area. I'm not perfectly sure about that, but I know that the particles of ice theory is the one that's most common nowadays. Okay. Um, as these particles separate into different regions of the cloud, they can build up quite a bit so that one part of the cloud is really highly negative and other parts really highly positive. And it can be several different places in a cloud that do that. And then when they discharge from one area to the other, when those, for, when those the forces cause the particles to re, reaccumulate, then we call that lightning. And the most common form is intracloud lightning, where the, where the particles within the cloud move from one area to the other as a result of static discharge. Okay. When we see lightning, most of the time, that's what it is. This is not gr- uh, a cloud of ground lightning. This is within the cloud. Uh, certainly that happens, w- but it's would not you as see, common. Would you see the yeah, lightning? Yeah, you can up, see it. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. If you're driving down the road and it's mm-hmm. a thunderstorm off in the distance, oftentimes mm-hmm. you look up and you see the lightning is from one part of the cloud to the okay. other part. Yeah. That's actually the most common type. Okay. But there is the type that you just talked about and the type that we're all kind of afraid of is when some charge begins coming down toward the earth the opposite charge in the earth starts coming up towards it and it forms what's called a channel. And that channel is almost like an electric circuit that allows tremendous amounts of energy to flow from one place to the other. And it heats up the air and causes this really bright light. And then obviously it causes the pressure changes in the air that we then call thunder. So the particles in the air raising in temperature, like, Glow. That's right. Exactly yeah. right. Okay. Yeah. When the temperature like goes block, really black body radiation, it's what it is. Yeah. yeah. The okay. temperature goes up high enough that the visible light that comes off of those particles mm-hmm. is is in the spectrum. And the, the color, the, the color that we see is directly proportional to the, the temperature. temperature. Yeah. Yes. Exactly right. That's right. Mm-hmm. So when we see really scary lightning, you know, basically this is what's happening. There are charges that are coming together under the forces of attraction so that the discharge occurs and there's no longer this separation of charge. Okay. You know, I was doing some research on this before the podcast and found that from 2007 to 2011, lightning was responsible for almost 23,000 fires in the United States alone. That's a that's lot. That's a lot. Yeah. That's why this is an important topic, you yes. know. And the other thing I found was over the last 30 years... On the average, 40 human people, for me, 40 humans have died due to lightning strikes. Wow. You know? Although so it is kind of rare, it's still... Oh, a, it's, it's real, though. Real, you know? yeah. yeah. for sure. Mm-hmm. This brings us back to Ben Franklin, because one of the things he was concerned about when he was studying all this was a contribution he could make that would make lightning a safer 
phenomenon, you know? Mm -hmm. So all of us are probably more aware of this invention than any other. It was Ben Franklin's invention of the lightning rod. And he said, if you take a piece of metal, and I have a picture of the first one that he forged. It's really this kind of nasty piece of metal. It's all banged up, (laughs) but it has a real uh, sharp tip on one side. And then if you attach a cable that, that is a conductor, from the bottom of that rod into the ground, it'll take all the energy that would have hit the house, for example, and just deposit those charges into the ground okay. in a safe way. Okay. And so he suggested that everybody should have lightning rods to protect their property and so on. Um, so that was a, a really big contribution that he made to the safety and general welfare of people, which he was always concerned I don't about. have one on my house. But uh, the, like larger buildings, and oh, things, yeah. they oh, all yeah. have them. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the skyscrapers have yes. several of them. Because they're even closer to the clouds. Yeah, the closer you are, the easier for the discharge. Mm -hmm. You know, this is one of the most important inventions that he had, but he was a prolific inventor. Do you know any of his other inventions? For some reason, like I I always remember like the Franklin stove. (laughs) That's a good one, yeah. That was a stove that he invented that allowed for flow of of hot gases around the stove so that by the time it came out of the stove and into the room, it was a much more efficient way of capturing the energy. So he he designed this thing as a way of capturing more of the heat from the burning fuel inside the stove instead of all of it just going up the chimney. Here's a couple others that you might not have known. He actually invented swimming fins. I don't know if you knew that. He was an amazing swimmer. In fact, he was uh, inducted into the International Swimming Hall of Fame. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't look like too much of an athlete in his pictures, but he was always swimming since time he was little and was always saying, this is the great way of exercising. It's just amazing to me. Like, it's Mm -hmm. like, I feel like when it rains, it pours. Like, you have these people that Mm -hmm. are just, can have contributed in so many ways. It's just an amazing thing. Franklin is probably the best example I can think of Mm because he also invented a musical instrument called the harmonica. Oh. And it was basically made from spinning glass bowls that the player just wet his finger or her fingers on and touched the bowls as they spun. And oh, so like you don't have to move your finger. The no, bowl moves. The bowl moves yeah. for you. Okay. And this instrument was actually used by Mozart and Beethoven at wow. the time. It's since been kind of not used as much. But it's from what I understand when I was reading uh, for researching this podcast, it's kind of making a comeback in the music world, which is oh. interesting. <laughs> Another invention that he made that you find interesting is called the flexible metal catheter. He, he invented this because his brother <laughs> had to pass kidney stones oh. and it was really painful. So yes. the reason I'm bringing it up to you because I know you've had kidney stones uh-huh. and And I wouldn't wish it on anybody. No. (laughs) Another invention of Franklin was the bifocal. I don't know if you recognize that. Sure, I did know that. Yes, I did know that. He was mad about the fact that his glasses only allowed him to see close or far. Mm -hmm. So he decided to put both combination lenses in his glasses. He also invented what's called a long arm device so that if you needed to remove a book from a really high shelf in your library, Mm -hmm. you can get it out. In fact, he was one of the first librarians in the entire United States as well. I had heard that as well, yes. And another important mechanical device he invented was the odometer. We have one in every car, right? It tells you how far you've gone. He needed that because he was the first postmaster of the United (laughs) States. And in the buggies that the mailmen were using, he wanted to find out how far they went in one day. So just amazing. He was a postmaster. He was America's first diplomat. He was a prolific writer and publisher. He published the Pennsylvania Gazette, which was a super mm-hmm. popular um, newspaper at the time. He was the first uh, writer of a politi- political cartoon. Uh, he wrote Poor Richard's Almanac as sure. a, under pseudonym. Yeah. Uh, sold 10,000 copies a year for almost three decades, which is amazing. You know, all of us have heard a penny saved is a penny earned. Yes. He came up with all these aphorisms and put them in that almanac, along with all kinds of other useful information. Huh. He established the first volunteer fire company. In Philadelphia, he I was heard that. also one of the five people on a committee to establish 
and write the Declaration of Independence. Hmm. I mean, this is a sin. Just that insane. would be amazing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just hard to overstate the impact that Franklin had, not only on science, but on the world around us. And this extended over into Europe as well. So. What kind of a person he would have been to talk to? Oh, my gosh. You yeah. Know? Like, I guess do we you could... think he knew of, of all his contributions? Like... Uh, in a pompous kind I think, of way? Well, not in, a, not in an arrogant way, but yeah, one yeah. I think that was trying to help people because, again, his autobiography is pretty clear mm-hmm. about the fact that he wanted people to know about his life, okay. specifically his son. Yeah. Uh, and I mentioned his son earlier. His son was uh, actually born when he was in England. He was an illegitimate son to somebody other than who would become his common-law wife here in the United States uh. or in the colonies at that time. Mm-hmm. And he had uh, kind of been promised to this woman in Philadelphia and uh, he went to England for a while to learn about publishing, and, 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 and I guess when he was over there, he had a child, brought the child back. The woman took him in again, and they did live together for mm-hmm. the rest of their lives. But Franklin was, was frankly, away a lot. Yeah. He wasn't probably the best of husbands. I'm sure. But his son became a real proponent of British colonialism, <laughs> and it turns out after Franklin was involved with the founding of the United States, they had a kind of like a, a falling out sort of a thing, and his son was actually arrested for two years before he went back to England. So huh. it's interesting how family dynamics work. Um, did he did he disown him? I don't know if he went quite that far, okay. but he certainly had a difference of opinion eventually with sure. him. So yeah. the interesting life of Ben Franklin and his role in our understanding of lightning. I hope you enjoyed it. I really did. Thanks a lot, Jack. Sure. Bye-bye. This has been MySciencePrep.com's Chemistry and Physics Podcast. It was produced in Pittsburgh, PA. Visit myscience-prep.com for more episodes.